Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like puddles, aching, or accidents. Or wedges, hedges, and ledges. I love the idea of pledges. Hmm. Sort of promises. Promises. The history of promises is lovely. Yes. Yeah. It'll be lovely. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam? Who knew? that the history of rubbish we've done before is in fact all about truth, secret habits, fixed wrestling matches in Egyptian society, sweets and political discontentment. Mm. Did you know that? No, um, not all of that. Not all of it. No. Um, did you know that the history of puddles is all about mining and the Industrial Revolution and the engineering of Roman roads? No, I didn't. I've become increasingly fascinated by the history of puddles when a <laughs> child... Uh, suggested we do the history of puddles at the Chalk Valley History Festival. Oh, we were doing those fun exercises when, when we explained what we did with histories of the unexpected. We got people involved, got people to make suggestions, and um, and our 12-year-old kid said, can you do the history of puddles? And I was inspired, so I want to do the history of puddles next. Well, I have a secret fact, a secret fact from our friends at the Foreign Field Living History Group. Hi, guys. Uh, and um, they got in touch, Paul got in touch, having listened to our episode on blood and fire and he thought that he would give us a fact uh, who knew who knew he writes the history of blood and fire is all about the dunkirk evacuation hmm. did you know that and he explains um blood and fire of course is the war cry of the salvation army now once the soldiers started returning from dunkirk getting on trains from ramsgate Margate and Dover, on every train there was a Salvation Army officer and other volunteers that gave out postcards asking soldiers to write their family's name and address on them. They were posted and delivered free of charge. Each postcard had the words, alive and arrived safe, on the back of it. Isn't that brilliant? That is brilliant. Thank you, Paul. That's terrific. The man sitting opposite me pulls the strings of history. <laughs> Don't you just, James? Uh, he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. We'll come back to the title Professor in a minute because it's we, funny. We will, we will. <laughs> and, and the man sitting opposite me 
is the Samuel Pepys of historical verification. It's the truly wonderful historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. We will come back to Pepys as well. And we will come back to Pepys. We will um, come back to Pepys. Because today we are doing... Oh, very excited about today because we're doing the history of puppets. We are. Puppets, we have written a chapter on puppets. <laughs> Samuel Willis. That might happen quite a lot today. (laughs) We we have written a chapter on puppets in our new series book on World War II. Uh, So that inspired us. We have also both just seen a brilliant new movie that is coming out next week, I think. It's launching on the 22nd of November, and it is called Judy and Punch. And it is a retelling of the extraordinary folktale Punch and Judy, which I suspect thousands upon thousands of you will know very well, but you won't know how it can be reimagined, and this film has done that for us. Uh, It's a fabulous thing, so we've been inspired to do puppets by that film as well. So we're going to be rampaging around the history of puppets, aren't we? We are. We should probably talk a little bit about the film. I watched it yesterday, and I thought it was... I thought it was excellent. I mean, what I... I mean, it is, as you say, it's a retelling of traditional Punch and Judy in sort of real life. Um, You've got the two characters, uh, Judy and Punch, and they come back to their her hometown where she's been brought up. She's quite wealthy, and then married, met Punch and sort of goes off on a on a sort of joy of uh, discovery with him. Uh, things go wrong partly because of his drinking. They come back, set things up, and perform a, a show. And then after that, everything unravels. And what's brilliant is the way in which they intertwine a lot of the stock characters and scenarios of traditional Punch and Judy and put it into this into this film, but reimagined as a sort of female revenge. And it, I thought it was quite I thought it was quite extraordinary. I thought I thought thinking about what it's like, it's a kind of cross between Shakespeare in love, delicatessen, that sort of dark French film, uh, meets Robin Hood and that Clint Eastwood film Unforgiven, with a sort of feminist slant to it. Yeah, and the bed of the Princess Bride in it. I thought it was... Um, because you're not quite sure to what extent it's real and to what extent it isn't real. It really plays with the reality. But that's what the Punch and Judy show has already done. So yes. what I loved about it was how faithful it was to the traditional Punch and Judy story. Yes. And when I watched it, I, I, um, I knew that it was faithful to the Punch and Judy story. It does move away from it at, at times as well, but primarily it's faithful to the characters and to the story. Yes. And I couldn't believe what I was watching in a couple of moments. And I had yeah. to go back to check that my my memory of this was actually right. And the Punch and Judy story is completely extraordinary. And I think it's one of the reasons they've made this film, and it's one of the reasons it's a continually fascinating subject for historians, because of the nature of the tale. Punch is a seriously unpleasant person. And essentially, I mean, he... he um, has his wife, Judy. They have a baby. He kills the baby. And then he um, beats up everyone he comes across, including his wife and including the devil and various other figures of authority. That part of the story is very much brought through the film and uh, it's jaw-dropping. <laughs> it's absolutely it? jaw-dropping. And the the director is Mira Falks uh, and it is, I mean, beautifully shot. It's got a great soundtrack going through it and that was one of the sort of really striking things throughout it and I thought it was just it was just really well acted the main actress is uh, Mia 
Wesikowski, and the main actor who plays Punch is uh, Damon Herriman. And I thought they were just extraordinary. There's something very... I mean, the Shakespeare in Love that I was talking about earlier on is because I think it will it will hit that kind of audience. You know, I think people wanting to go along and look at a... watch a good art house movie that's well acted, mm. I think we'll, we'll get such a lot out of it. I watched it with my hands over my ears and my mouth open a couple of times. And actually, I just stand up and walk around... It was um, it just it was so clever and um, yeah, really, really, really moving. And also, I mean, the, because I mean, one of the things I think I'd like to go along and talk about is the theme of domestic violence yeah. that I think has a really interesting history. That what what's really interesting about this is they seem it seems to be situated in some kind of um, faux medieval sort of slash seventeenth century sort of period, a town called Seaside, which basically is nowhere near the sea, but they sort of built it there and then thought the sea would come to it. The, but, the obvious point there is that the Punch and Judy shows were very popular were, were, in the British... Popular by British the seaside, yeah. Um, but also, it's this kind of, like, low-level violence that was absolutely endemic throughout yeah. early modern and medieval society. So there is the happy stoning day, where, you know, where, where witches are you know, are, are stoned in it. And everyone gets a stone. Their yes. stones are handed around yes. and then they, they hold them. And it's, um, it's what, what's so effective about it is it's done in such a matter-of-fact way. Do you know what? That, that was echoes of The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I, I, so, I mean, it was a deep... I thought What I thought was it was a deeply clever film weaving in all sorts of genres into it. So if you love, if you love your, you know, thoughtful, well-acted, well-directed movies... Go along and see it. I mean, so coming back to the domestic violence, I mean, Punch does beat up his wife with a stick. And that's the fundamental point of yes. know, the Punch and Judy at the beginning. Yes. And there are a couple of responses to that. Dickens wrote about it in 1849. He wrote, In my opinion, the street punch is one of those extravagant reliefs from the realities of life which would lose its hold upon the people if it were made moral and instructive. I regard it as quite harmless in its influence and as an outrageous joke which no one in existence would think of regarding as an incentive to any kind of action or as a model for any kind of conduct. It is possible, I think, that one secret source of pleasure very generally derived from this performance is the satisfaction the spectator feels in the circumstance that likenesses of men and women can be so knocked about without any pain or suffering. Now, there's a, a, another um, commentary on this as well, because increasingly Punch and Judy has been not necessarily attacked, but been focused on by the press because of its demonstration yeah. of violence. And one of the um, puppeteers known as Professor Jingles, we should just say here, which is why I found this funny, that um, Punch and Judy puppeteers are known as professors. So um, Professor Daybell, I think, it just sounds like a wonderful name for a Punch and Judy puppeteer. This is yes. Professor Jingles, who, who rather cleverly says that Punch no more encourages violence than Goldilocks encourages squatting. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a, which is a, a fabulous shot, but you know the one the one thing that this film does is um, it brings the the violence of Punch to a very very real life, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, 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 it does. And I think I think the thing with it is is that that is something that's brought in in the Victorian period, and I think there's a really interesting transition in the 18th century, late 18th century, where it changes from being a marionette show, so in other words, puppets with strings. 
and moves to being much more to do with glove puppets. And from there, what that means is that it's a much more portable art form. Yep. And so it moves onto the streets. And I think what you're playing to there is to uh, a very urban, often quite working class audience. Impoverished. Impoverished. Yeah. And I think what you're... And you can connect that to some of the problems with industrialization, uh, where you're having situations that create tensions between husbands and wives. And what you're seeing is those kinds of tensions played out in representative form in the puppet show. Yeah. And also, I think what, what what's interesting about that is that it's, it's also discussing the kinds of themes that earlier would have been discussed in things like popular ballads. In the 17th century, ballads would have been full of tales about wife-beating. Um, and what, what effectively you've got is a sort of, is a discussion about who wears the trousers in the family, yeah. which is so different from what happens when it enters into the middle-class drawing rooms. And there's a brilliant article that I've been reading. If I just leaf through my... Um, leaf through my stuff here. So this came out in Historical Journal in, let me see the date, in 2006 by Rosalind Crone and it's called Mr and Mrs Punch in 19th century England and what she draws there is this distinction between working class street theatre and then stuff that ends up in the drawing rooms of the wealthy and what she's saying is that once it enters into that sort of middle class environment it does have this moral take on it, which Dickens, you know, your quote from Dickens, Dickens is saying that, you know, people don't want to be moralised about it. It's sort of escapist fun. But actually, there's a brilliant example that she reads from uh, J.M. Barry's novel, Sentimental Tommy, which was published in 1896, J.M. Barry being the, the famous um, um, writer of, um, of uh, Peter Pan. Um, and... So there, there is this, um, there is this performance of Punch and Judy uh, in the drawing room. The performance took place, and none of the fun was omitted. Yet neither Miss Alice, Miss Alinor, uh, Mister Dishart could disprove. Punch did chuck the baby out of the window, roars of laughter in his jovial time-honoured way. But immediately thereafter, up popped the showman to say. Ah, my dear boys and girls, let this be a lesson to you. Never destroy your offspring. Oh, shame on Punch, for to do the wicked deed, he will be catched in the end and serve him right. Then Mr Punch had walloped his wife with the stick amid thunder of applause. Up again popped the showman. Ah, my dear boys and girls, what a lesson is this we seize. What goings on is this? He have bashed the head of her who should have been the apple of his eye. And he does not care. He does not care. But mark my word, his home will now be desolate. No more shall she meet him at his door with kindly smile. He have done for her quiet. And now he is a haunted man. Oh, be warned by this sad example. And do not bash the head of your loving wife. So there is this sense in which the kids are seeing this. I mean, this is fictional, um, but it's a sort of representation of real life. The kids are seeing this, laughing, finding it funny. And then up, up steps the man who's 
the professor who's performing it and oh, okay. moralises about it. It was interesting, kids' responses to this. I found another little interview with um, Molly O'Hanlon, who was six, and she was oh, she just seen oh. a show and she was asked what was her favourite bit. And she was pretty pretty appalled by the entire thing, but, but she said, I'm not sure what my favourite bit was. Maybe the bit where he threw the baby on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think it is. It is. It is. Humorous. It is humorous. Right? I think it's um, people like w- what Punch is doing, and I think what the audience are doing through Punch yep. is poking accepted levels of behaviour and authority. So, yeah, Punch is very much against authority. He 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 takes things too far all the time, particularly against figures of authority. There's a bit where he hangs in the traditional show where he yeah. is finally caught for his crimes, he's brought um, to the gallows and he is to be hanged, but he tricks the hangman and then the hangman is hanged. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it goes on and on. And I think the... Well, one of the big mysteries, of course, about Punch and Judy is why is it so enduringly fascinating to everyone when it deals with such horrible, horrible themes? Um one of the answers is I, th- I think it's the same explanation as why people like watching horror films. I, I had a bit of a, a, a bit of a moment about this. All right, I'm going to show you something. Ah, yes. So I used to have a punch. Puppet, this is a punch puppet from the collections of the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, as we're talking about this, guys, if you're near a computer, go onto the VNA Museum website collections.vam.ac.uk. Put in puppets. Put in Punch and Judy. They've got a fabulous collection. Um, here you've got Punch. I'm going to be talking about his appearance and his sound as well later. But he's wearing essentially a medieval jester's costume. Yes. He is wearing a jester's hat. He's got these traditional harlequin red and yellow colours, um, distorted facial features, quite unpleasant looking, a sort of rictus grin, permanent makeup. Um, so it's, he's a clown, essentially. Yeah. He's got the ruff around the neck. And not only is he a clown, but he's, he's, he's essentially the first killer clown. Yes. Because he does kill people. Yes. And this is, this is, also, this is also very different from its Italian roots. In Comedy dell'arte, um, which is a sort of form of masked comedic entertainment that comes over um, from Italy from the 16th century and into the 17th century in England, Samuel Pepys is viewing it in London. That's right. The first description of yeah. a Punch and Judy show is from yeah. the diary of Samuel Pepys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the but the costume of the of the Italian clown, the Italian sort of form of, of Punch, is white. And so this, what what we see here is is effectively the jester's costume. Yeah. Um, so he's a he's very much a sort of an anglicised version of an Italian earlier model. Yeah. But yeah, Samuel Pepys. So I mean, this made me think about Pepys. Pepys, Pepys is often used as the source of the first um, example of something happening. Yesterday on our Twitter feed, we had Pepys being the first person who saw a blood transfusion. Hmm. Uh, likewise here, he's the person who is viewing the Punch and Judy. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the first time it happened. No, of course not. <laughs> that, that's the thing. And, it, and it's just, what's striking about this is how do, we start, how do we start thinking about the sources behind Punch and Judy? Yeah. And we, we've got a wonderful sort of material culture that survives with the Victorian Albert Museum, and there is a, a museum of Punch and Judy, um, there are all sorts of woodcuts. There are all sorts of, you know, um, playbills, all of those kinds of things. Um, but also then there are sightings of it, actually seeing it in in London, in the streets, further back. Where do you start looking at that? Where do you start finding that? 
Um, I imagine church courts material, you know, where there are infractions around around puppet shows, because I imagine they're, you know, or the old Bailey. Yeah. So pickpockets happening at these events, you'd be able to pick it up. That's there. a great idea. Um, yeah. And I love the fact, actually, so much of it is lost to time. So we've got these, that you say you've got peeps, but we're saying that it would have happened earlier. There is a depiction, uh, this is a 14th century illuminated manuscript edition of the Romance of Alexander. And it's wonderful. It looks as if it's been made up by someone who wants us to believe that Punch and Judy has got earlier roots. Yeah. So there are three little maidens yep. sitting down, obviously children, and they are sitting down in front of a little booth, essentially. The booth is uh, draped with material. There's a little stage or a couple of castles. There's a joining sort of roof over it. And in the, this, it is a Punch and Judy puppet stage, is yep. a man with a stick... Yeah. And a maiden. Um, now, historians don't actually believe this was Punch and Judy, but it's definitely an early 14th century form of puppet, puppet show. show. Yeah. So uh, we've got this problem, historical problem, of actually how you do you do the history of puppets because we know it existed earlier than the written sources yeah. suggest. And the other problem is it's often an oral tradition. So the great thing about Punch and Judy, is a bit like Cinderella, is that the story changes as long as you hit some key points. Yep. One is that Punch has a stick, he attacks his wife, he kills the baby, there's a crocodile, there's a devil, there's um, a, another miscellaneous figure of authority. In the same way that, you know, with Cinderella, you need to have, you need to have the slippers, you need to have the clock, you need to have, yep. you know, all the other things. Um, so much of, much of this history of puppets and puppetry is, is lost to time, and that's a wonderful opportunity for the historian, I think. Yeah. One of the things that also struck me about the film is the just the expertise of the puppet masters and it is almost a sort of balletic form yeah you know when you see them they're they're sort of the the artfulness of it and particularly particularly judy and her obvious sort of graceful skill of it and i think i think early marionette um sort of puppeteering is incredibly skillful mm. and i think that some of the earliest once it once it's gone from Peeps's London Street, it then finds its way into certain theatres. Um, I think there's one in Bath, there are some in London, and there are some real impresarios who are, you know, looking after things then. There's a, there's a key moment in the film, isn't it, where he it, it all changes and he gets a new helper to help yes, him out with it. Yes. And it becomes incredibly difficult. So one of the problems with a marionette is actually very difficult to hit another marionette with a stick yes. and to make it look yes. good. Yes. But that is not the same with glove puppets. No. So once so also with marionettes, you you've got there are two of them doing it, aren't there? And yeah. the, the big difference yeah. with a punch and duty show as we know it is that there's only one person. Yeah. So it's cheaper. Yeah. As well. And it's. Done, I'm not saying that um, Punch and Judy with gloves is easy. By no means is it easy, from what I've understood. However, it is easier yes. to smack yes. someone with a stick yes. using a glove puppet yes. because you bend at the waist and you can hold on to the stick. So yeah. that's the way to do it. The the glove um, the the gloves actually enables the violence. Yes. In in a certain way, the, the format of doing it with gloves makes it. Punchier, yes, as they as they as they refer to it in the show, punchy. Mm. Um, but it's it's not just a one man band. There is also a character called a bottler. Yes. So the bottler is the person who goes around 
drumming up the crowd. Well, Come on, come and see Sam and James's Punch and Judy show. And Professor Davos. And Professor Davos. I'd be the bo- I'd be the bottler. You'd be the bottler, but you'd be you'd be running around whooping people up. You'd be very good at that, by the way. Thank you. Um, uh, and you'd also have a you'd also have a receptacle. Yeah. Uh, to put for people to put money in, and that's something that happens at the, in the film. Do you know the other thing I'd be doing before they perform? I would be. What was that? Exactly, this is the point. What is this? Okay, so because it's all done through this thing you put in your mouth called a swazzle, right? So if you've only got one person doing the show, you have to be able to manipulate your voice. Um, We'll talk about swazzles in a minute. But the other thing the bottler did was interpret. So the, the puppet master with the voice can choose how intelligible he is. And some of them are very intelligible, and some of them are deliberately unintelligible. So the bottler has an active role in the show in repeating or translating what Punch is saying, which is fascinating. He can make it up he to, can, to, he, for the audience. More or less, but and he, yeah. can, he can certainly interpret it, and he can, there's a lot of repetition. So um, you might say something uh, like this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is this is Professor Daybell. You've had fun with this. I have. Haven't you? Ready? And then the bottler would say, "Mr. Punch, do you like being by the seaside?" <laughs> and they, there's a very specific form of what they do. So the bottlers don't just repeat; they do it in a question format. Right. It's really interesting. <laughs> the history of repetition, the history of questions in engaging kids. Anyway, back to the bottler. You were telling me. No, I'd done, on the, oh. I'd done on the bottler. That was almost it. You'd, you'd added a lot more about the bottler than I, in fact, knew. Oh, OK. Um, well, listen, let's just talk about this swazzle thing because it's cool. The swazzle is a, it's a little thing that goes in the mouth, isn't it? And you could, you, it's small enough that you had to be quite careful with it because you could actually swallow it. Yes, not only that, I read somewhere that a, prof- a professor could only call himself a proper professor if he'd swallowed three. <laughs> so here we are. We've got a swazzle here. This, again, is from the Victoria and Albert Museums. 
collections. And it's, uh, can we describe that? <laughs> They're often made of bone or thin metal, and it's like a, a, or a used to be a reed as well. And it's... Um, it's really hard to describe, isn't it? If you imagine it an inch, inch long, and it's two pieces together, and they're sort of bow bow shaped, yeah. so that it would have a little bit that you could breathe, that you breathe could make through. the sound through, rather like a reed in a flute or something like that. Oh, you know when you put your thumbs together and yes. you put a, you put a piece, piece of, of grass, grass in yeah. it, it kind of looks like that, and the um, the bit of metals are like your thumbs, and they're holding something in the middle, and then they're bound together by a bit of cloth. Yeah, and you presumably put that. You presumably put that in your mouth with the back of your throat yeah. and, then, and then clutch it on your teeth. But the trick is being able to do it um, and do a normal voice. Yes. Oh, it's reminding me. I was reading somewhere about um, the voice changing, about how it's, um, it's about the changing of sex of voices. So Judy is often presented with a deep, norm, a man's normal talking voice. We should say here that professors of Punch and Judy are usually men and they would yes. speak in a normal tone for Judy and speak in a high tone... For punch, and it's an, another way of mixing up the kind of the gender roles and what's going on on in the show. That is interesting, isn't it? Hmm. The whole thing's interesting. Yes. So not only does he sound strange, and there are reasons for doing that. Well, obviously, you've got to be able to create a kind of uh, an other world with the show, um, and that is one of the reasons that people say that it actually doesn't incite violence because by yep. setting it up on this little booth with its stripy front or whatever it might be and having these bizarre looking characters and the strange voice is all part of that it's clearly not the real world no no but also that's about identifying it as a form of entertainment that people will flock along to see yeah yeah it, i remember i remember as a kid and what am i now i'm now in my mid 40s so i mem remember sort of 35 or so years ago being on various beaches around the countryside around the country and seeing those booths on the beach and they would be left unmanned but they would have a time on it and you would know to go there at a particular time to go along and see Punch and Judy and it was a big thing of my childhood did you note that it was at beautiful days oh we summer? did the festival music festival in beautiful just days, outside Devon just outside of, in, in Devon just outside of Exeter uh, there was a Punch and Judy show there. Huh. I'd have liked to have seen that. I sat down and was uh, um, immediately bored by it. Oh, <laughs> hard luck. Yes, I know. <laughs> so we left. I think the kid. I think I. I think the kids were just not particularly interested in it. Yeah. I think they were almost. I think it was pitched at a very young audience. Yeah. Uh, actually, quite gentle, and we sat down for two minutes and then just left. One of the great things about about the film coming back to it again, is at the end, they've got this amazing bit of footage which is like yeah. a goggle box yes. for children watching Punch and Judy. Yes. And those kids are not bored by it. Wow! So it's no. um, 1940s or 50s? Probably 1940s, yeah. And someone has had the genius um, idea to film the kids rather than the show. So you can hear what's going on and they... Um, my son, when, when he was scared of stuff when he was a kid, he'd put his hands over his ears. Is anyone, what's that about? Um, we could do something on the history of ears. If anyone knows, please get in touch. But there's a kid just with hands over ears in complete horror. There's a lot of jumping. There's a lot of, um, you know, kind of freaking out. Um, and that really made me think about what other forms of entertainment in history you would like to view the audience reactions of. 
one of the things that we've been talking about, particularly for our show that we're doing on the Tudors at the moment, is the burnings. We talked about that last week. Yeah. Um, I think viewing public spectacles of horror like that, yes. looking at looking at the reaction of people going along to hangings, the people at the French Revolution who were in the crowd looking at the guillotinings, you know, people who stand outside the gates of electrocutions in the United States. I mean, because it is about it is about horror, isn't it? What made when I saw that, the first thing I thought was the um, there's a brilliant bit in Gladiator, the film where Joaquin Phoenix is Commodus. Yes. And where he goes no, it's actually he kind of half gets out of his seat and sort of licks his lips at the violence of what's going on. Something particularly gruesome is happening um, yes. with, with a lion. With, I think it's a, it's a tiger about to maul someone and it's, it's made him almost stand up with excitement and his face is distorted in this, this kind of hideous grin of um, absorbing and appreciating what's going on in front we of him. Should do so- we should do something on the history of violence mm. um, because I think, I think it's... It is extraordinary, really, the the degree to which we are obsessed nowadays as much as the Romans were with violence. I remember reading a piece by Mary Beard quite recently where she was talking about, you know, we often see the the ancient Roman world as something that's very different from our own and that they... And the examples are given about gladiatorial combats and the, the sort of gruesome violence of that. And she said, well, actually, if you look at what's going on on most of our mobile phones and on social media, there is an awful lot of material there that is incredibly violent that people are watching. You know, so, you know, the, the sort of discovery of the body of Saddam Hussein gets on the, yeah. you know, on the internet. And we are obsessed with it. What is it about about human nature that is that finds it so endlessly fascinating yeah uh, or just or just knows that it knows that you shouldn't be watching it but nonetheless can't help yourself from watching it and when, when you are watching it just think about what your face is doing because it actually comes yes. back to this this whole idea the other one is miracles so you know i'd, I'd actually yeah. i'd like to have seen the crowd who witnessed jesus turn water into wine that would have been amazing but there are actual you know there are miracles throughout history the miracles at lords in 1858 when yes. um, when when mary appears 16 times to, yes. to a girl and the crowds are twenty thousand strong yeah. at the end but that's yeah. another example where where you'd probably learn a great deal about history, about the event, by by studying the physical reactions of people rather than what they have written down. Yes. I thought you were going to say the, the miracle at Lords there, which was <laughs> the, the sort of... The world, us winning the, the World Eng- Cup. When the English... But yes, I thought, thought that was it. <laughs> rather than the, the miracle at Lord. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but interestingly, you can... You can um, the, you know, sporting events is another one. I was watching some footage of Muhammad Ali recently, and if you ignore the boxing... You can look yes. at the reaction of the crowd. Yeah. And there's, well, there's a lot to learn there. The reaction of people's facial expressions when they are on roller coasters. Yeah. There's, there's often, you often see that with people sitting in, in the little carriages on roller coasters and there's a camera, you know, watching their facial expressions. I remember um, Jimmy, Jimmy Savile, uh, before, he was, uh, before he became so evil, uh, Jim will fix it. The opening titles of it had this group of scouts or cubs going on a roller coaster, eating their lunch <laughs> and just spitting it everywhere. Yeah, we digress, however. I think. Well, yeah, um, yes and no. The, um, the the point about watching the reactions of the audience gets you to think about the perspective of a puppet show from from the point of view of the puppeteer. 
Yes. So actually, that might seem unusual to us because we're all facing the booth. But for the puppeteer, then they're, they're constantly working with the audience and playing with them and teasing them. Hmm. Hmm. And um, one of the, you know, how, how do we do the history of puppets? There are so many different ways of doing the history of puppets, but I think one of the most fascinating things is looking at the history of the experts who did it. They were known as professors. It was often passed down through families. Yes, uh, generations. Generations and generations of... Yep. of, of There's kind of Punch and Judy royalty, basically. Yes, yes. I mean, there would be people who, you know, families would pass it on from one generation to the next, and if you had the concession for Western Supermare... Yeah. You know, and every summer you'd have a ton of kids coming along and watching your Punch and Judy show. You know, you'd absolutely mint it, wouldn't mm. you? And more broadly, it talks about the history of mischief, which we've written about. Yes. There's a chapter of mischief in our um, book on the Vikings, which is all about a Roman god of mischief. I'm oh, sorry, a Viking god of mischief. They love mischief so much. Yeah, so it speaks of this Viking god of mischief, and he's got so much in common with Punch. It's unbelievable called Loki and it's very difficult actually working out what his characteristics are because there are so many different words that are used to describe him but it's to do with slyness here we are craft art skill fraud treason harm bane evil woe misfortune and ruin and he gets up to all sorts of terrible things Loki not least of which is the fact that he's single-handedly responsible for killing Odin's son, Balder, who was praised and loved by all. Um, and he was a god who was associated with good things like joy, purity and the summer sun. So that really made me think of Bunch killing the baby. And there's a wonderful history of mischief, which you can explore in Punch. is just a small chapter in that. Yes. We've also looked at puppets in our book on... World War Two, mm. uh, which is really good. So here, puppets are all about totalitarian rule and the struggle for freedom. And puppets have often been used as a form of entertainment, but also they have propaganda properties. Um, and in particular, one of the things that we looked at was puppets and the Holocaust and the way in which puppets could be used to demonise uh, Jewish peoples. And we did some work on the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., which has an extraordinary collection of puppets. It's got an, a collection of over 900 of them uh, that survive in sort of various forms. They've got posters, paintings, decorative art, toys, um, and they've got all of these that are portraying Jews in particular ways. Um, and one item that they've got is a paper mache puppet um, that um, is of a balding man with a bare skull, which is covered by a smart black Jewish cap, which is a traditional sort of Jewish cap. He wears tight, round glasses, and he has a very large hook nose, fine clothes that are distinctly uh, Jewish in appearance. Um, and these would have these kind of characters would have been used in local areas like Romania, for example where they would have been used for propaganda. Yeah, the um, the appearance of the puppet is interesting there and how the figures are often distorted. I've got a d description here, it reminded me of this actually. He had a hawk's beak for a nose and a hawk's beak inverted for a chin. In between were two thin blue crooked lines across his face. They served as lips. The yellow fangs behind them shone horribly when he laughed. His eyes were two black shiny beads deep set beneath black shaggy brows and the venomous male malevolence of a leering demon aflame within them. 
that's actually a description of uh, a Jewish man in a novel in 1886. But it's remarkable how many of those features and characteristics you can see in Punch. Yes. As well as in yes. the Jewish puppets that we found uh, related to the Holocaust. Yes. And um, it's not necessarily punches about anti-Semitism, but it's to do with visualising and figuring the other, something different to, yep. to who you are and yep. what you are, something to be demonised, <laughs> something to be scared. And I think that's yep. what's going on with Punch, making him feel very alien and very different, which is the whole purpose of it. The use of puppets to... Um, Mock mankind to mock humanity. That's what I think that story is all about. Yeah. Also, the idea of, of puppets has direct application to political history, diplomatic history. So you think about puppet rulers. Spitting image as well. Puppet, well, spitting image. Yeah. Puppet rule. I suppose satire is one. Um, but puppet rulers and yeah. puppet states. So that here what you have is essentially a, a sort of um, a dominant power that sets somebody up in a particular position uh, and basically rules through this puppet because they control the strings afterwards. And there's a deep history of this. It's particularly prevalent throughout South America, Latin America, um, around uh, colonisation, uh, colonialism, uh, in the late 19th century, the scramble for Africa, um, uh, the British rule in India, um, World War Two disrupting that, what happens in various parts of the world afterwards. Um, if you have a look at the history of Afghanistan, the world post World War Two, the setting up of the, you know, the Shah and using him as a sort of particular, um, sort of puppet um, there. But actually, these people who were puppet rulers were supported by external powers like the, you know, uh, Britain, France, the United States, um, and could get away with absolutely horrific things uh, with the local population, which is particularly what happened in Afghanistan. Yeah, um, sort of post. 1940s. Yeah, so it's the control of one being, one being or one one group of beings yes. by, by another. Yes, spitting image though, and, and puppets and satire, is fascinating. And and actually, Punch magazine, mm. you know, Punch itself. magazine itself has been a, a, a sort of political satirical magazine for you know, hundreds of years. Well, that's about it for puppets. Um, it's been an amazing ramble through through the history of people being manipulated by other people. Now, what else have we got going on, James? Well, Sam, we are currently on tour with our Histories of the Unexpected Live and our new show on the Tudors. We are coming from the Shelley Theatre, Bournemouth, on the 30th of November, and we are running a competition, which closes very soon, to win a pair of free tickets for this, and people have been sharing with us interesting historical facts about Bournemouth. And I thought I would just read out some of these. Debbie Kilroy uh, writes that one of the police officers investigating the Jack the Ripper murders, Frederick Aberline, retired to Bournemouth in 1904. Eva Lorraine Appleby, the first pier in Bournemouth, consisted of a short wooden jetty that was completed in 1856. This was replaced by a much la longer wooden pier designed by George Rennie, which opened on the 17th of September 1861. Irving Braxitel, Abraham Lincoln's assassin's sister, Asia Frigger Sidney Booth, lived in Bournemouth and died here in 1888. That's great. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Cooney, Bournemouth is a coastal resort town on the, southwest co on the south coast of England, east of the 96-mile-long Jurassic Coast, a World Heritage Site. Uh, Graham Keeling... Uh, Bournemouth Town Hall, formerly a hotel, housed one of the first telephones in the country. 
it had the phone number three. That's a brilliant fact. <laughs> brilliant fact. We should either do something on telephones or on the number three. Um, Sue Sinkinson, of the five UK winners of the Miss World contest, two came from Pool, which proves that we really do live in a beautiful place. Um, Sarah Buttimore, author J.R.R. Tolkien, holidayed for years in Dorset. During the 1950s and 60s, his regular holiday destination was a stay at the Hotel Miramar on Bournemouth's East Cliff. I love all of those. And, and Churchill, uh, Churchill uh, almost died in Bournemouth. What, from drinking too much? Uh, he died. From, <laughs> almost died. Almost died from something. Um, wonderful. Uh, guys, if you've enjoyed this episode, do please leave us a review on iTunes. It does make all the difference, believe me. Um, subscribe to the podcast. Tell all your friends we're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow the podcast on at unexpected pod now if you want to find out much more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months we've got video clips we've got notes on our tour we've got stuff on our books we've got our online magazine as well now we certainly do that's super fun if you want to get involved with that do please drop us a line we're looking for people to help us out as editors um, and finally uh, patreon have a look at patreon.com forward slash unexpected james and i as you regular listeners know we record in the shed down the end of my garden which means we have to stop for trains to come past and it's incredibly annoying we'd really like to be able to raise enough money to to hire out a proper recording studio anything you could offer us would be absolutely wonderful thank and you thanks to chantal spall uh for uh supporting us uh and to matt Merritt uh for recently supporting us so thank you very much thanks guys um that was great fun um what's what's up next james what are we doing next clothing, what we're doing next we're doing clothing yeah well stay stay get get ready to hear hear us on the history of clothing excellent bye bye Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.